before we hear the Lord, the Lord's word and preach, let's pray his blessing upon that and the reception of that word. Pray with me together. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you to hear from you. Lord, we praise you that you have given us such a rich treasure to know what to think and how to think, that you've given us a sure word regarding basic truths and profound truths. Uh, Lord, we thank you and we confess that this is your word breathed out by you and given to us as your covenant people. And yet, Lord God, we are so often hard of hearing. And so we ask that your gracious spirit would grant us grace this day and that you would indeed give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready and willing to believe. We pray, dear Lord, that you would magnify your son in our midst, that the good news of the gospel as it is presented in him would come to us again and afresh. And Lord, that we would find hope in life in believing. So we ask, Lord, grace for your people in this hour and grace for the one who speaks on your behalf in order that your name might be magnified in all the earth. And we together as your people all said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 51, let's give your full attention. This is the word of God. The choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. May he add his blessing upon it as it is preached this time. <clears throat> well, if there's only one thing that people know about the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> it's that famous event that took place on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. 
in protest against the Roman Catholic Church. The first thesis, thesis begins with the declaration that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. He begins this way. He says, O Lord and, I'm sorry, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of a believer should be repentance. Our lives are to be repentant lives. So we come this morning to one of the most well-known and beloved psalms in all of the Bible. Uh, Psalm 51 is on one of the seven um, psalms that are called the penitential psalms, right? The seven penitential psalms. These psalms express repentance and sorrow of some kind. Psalm 51 is probably the best known of these, of course, as we read. It's when David commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered in battle to try to cover that up. And David, we remember, is a man after God's own heart, a murderer and an adulterer and more. We've talked about the arrangement of the Psalms throughout as we've looked this summer at the Psalms, uh, book two of the Psalter. Uh, Sometimes we can miss their connectedness, how they go together. Uh, Sometimes we think Psalms are just randomly thrown together uh, like marbles disconnected in a box, independent of one another, but they're not like that. They're more like pieces of a puzzle that fit together. Uh, Consider Psalms 50 and 51, for instance. We don't think they're related usually. We just think of Psalm 51 as a standalone psalm, right? Psalm 50 is a psalm of Asaph, while Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. Psalm 50, we have God speaking. Psalm 51, it's David who speaks. And remember in Psalm 50, right, it says the mighty one, God the Lord, he calls his people to renew their covenants with him because that relationship has been fractured. The context of 51 is different. It's completely different, right? And we read about the context in the title or the inscription of the psalm and explains it for us uh, that I read that we see uh, before verse 1, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. We read about this event, of course, with David and Bathsheba uh, in Second Samuel 11 and 12. Where David is on his rooftop and he um, takes Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then calls Uriah to come back to uh, be with his wife. And he won't because he's a noble man. And um, David arranges for, for him to be killed in battle. And Nathan confronts him about this. But what are the Psalms about, these two? Psalm 15 and 51 specifically. What's the common theme of the two Psalms? Well, they're about repentance about repentance. We're going to walk through Psalm 51 and see this wonderful expression given by the Lord for his people uh, in our brokenness before the Lord and our plea for restoral. Um, And Psalm 51 is perhaps one of the best texts of God's word um, given for us to pray his word back to him. And so it is a blessing and a gift and a grant to his people. And we see this and we acknowledge what a caring and loving Lord we have indeed. Uh, And then we'll look at the nature and glory of true repentance, the nature and glory of godly sorrow and the fruits that issue forth from that sorrow. And, you know, the way that the church has historically seen, our church anyway, uh, understood repentance unto life, what that is, uh, we refer to it as a saving grace where a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of that sin, turn from it to God with a full intent and striving after new obedience. 
right? So in some, repentance, that's what true repentance is, turning from sin to God. And what does that look like? What does this turning look like, particularly from our psalm this morning, Psalm 51? Well, you see, first, the true repentance is, it appeals to mercy. It appeals to God's mercy, right? Verse 1 tells us this, have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions. Right? And this is an, an awareness and an affirmation that we bring nothing to the table regarding our rescue and our salvation, that God works for us. The only thing we bring is what? Our filth and our sin. And our only hope of being plucked from the fire of God's wrath and our bondage to sin and to guilt and addiction to sin is what? It's God's mercy. And so true repentance appeals to God's mercy alone. It's his work alone in the work of Christ We have nothing to appeal to. True repentance appeals to God's mercy in Jesus. And we come with what? With the empty hands of faith resting on his loving mercy alone. And so see, there's the the basis of appealing to God for mercy and blotting out transgressions and our forgiveness, right? Again, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, right? These are the construction of this line there, right? They're in parallel. This is a parallelism, right? And so the same idea is given in two different ways, and it's a way of intensifying, amplifying, emphasizing that prayer, what's being said. Again, the basis is what? His steadfast love. And this we know very well. His steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord. It's that which is the Lord's covenantal love, his loyal faithfulness to keep the promises that he's made to his people, his steadfast love. And then the next thing it says in parallel is his abundant mercy. And so we see, we flee to the Father for his love and his mercy. And we see this in our confession and our declaration of of pardon uh, quite frequently in our worship service, right? We hear from 1 John that says this very thing. When we sin, we go to our Father in prayer and we confess our sins because what? He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so true repentance appeals to God's mercy. And then we see this next section in the psalm, uh, verses 2 to 9, true repentance also admits sin. It admits sin and acknowledges that sin. Right? And you children that are here this morning, you've probably been told by your parents because they love you after you've done something naughty or disobeyed them or been mean or unkind to your brother or sister, They've told you to say you're sorry, right? You've heard your parents say this. They don't just want you to say the words though, right? They don't want you to just say you're sorry. They want you to mean, they want you to be sorry for the thing that you've done wrong. Because just saying you're sorry is what, and you don't mean it, is lying. And for all of us, we need to remember these simple things. We we don't want to be casual or careless liars in regards to our sorrow for the things that we've done. We want to be genuine children of God before our Father in integrity, with integrity and authenticity. And the Lord, by His Spirit, helps us here in these things. He walks with us and He leads us by His Word in our spirits. And He does this, and when He does, our confessed sins, our sins confessed, it is painful, yes, but it's refreshing as we receive that forgiveness. And it draws us closer to the Lord. It's like an infection, right? You can't It can be excruciating to have that infection scraped out or cut out, but it must be if there's to be healing. And notice what the psalm does as he goes on. 
it admits, it acknowledges sins, what, in general and also specific, in particular sins, right? Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Sin dirties our soul. It mars us. It stains us like dirt on a white shirt. Our clothes are full of stains. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions, right, plural, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Right, that's a general acknowledgement of sin, a general admission of sin. But then he moves in verse 4 to specific sin against you. You alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Right, this, of course, is a reference to what the psalm provoked this psalm to be written. David's adultery, after he's confronted his actions that result in Uriah's death. <clears throat> and so when you committed a specific sin and are convicted of it, and your conscience is pricked, it hurts, right? It bothers the tender and aware heart, and it's painful. So you have to confess that, that particular sin specifically. And then genuine repentance also is aware of, it admits that we have a sinful nature. It acknowledges the truth of that sinful nature. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And the more we understand who God is in his absolute purity and perfection, we become more and more aware of the blackness of our hearts and our need for forgiveness to be made new and to be cleansed and refreshed by the Lord. And so David acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges any praise in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And he continues to long as he goes on for this deep cleansing, deep cleaning. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This, of course, brings to mind the prophet Isaiah. Recall in chapter 1 of Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a glorious promise of the Lord through the prophet, right, and through David. What a precious longing we all should have for this cleansing and this purifying that only the Lord can provide. Uh, verse 8 goes on. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And, you know, it's only we who belong to Jesus can close that loop, right, that journey from pain to rejoicing in confession. Only those that belong to the Lord and we can praise the Lord even in that, even in that process, even in that, uh, that, that, that journey that we take, right? And we can say with the prophet, sorry, with the um, apostle Paul, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? What a glorious, wonderful, comforting truth that we can. And we see this genuine repentance, right? It appeals to God's mercy and it aspires, it admits rather um, the reality of our sin, but it also longs aspires to the new life, to new life. And that new life that is a reality for those in Christ is multifaceted, right? It's multifaceted, right? We desire to pursue and to grow in holiness, right? David says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And just as God spoke the world, the world into existence by the word of his power. 
right? In the beginning, God created, right? Our Bibles begin. It's the same word here, create in me a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, right? It's the same word, and it's a plea for what? Nothing less than God to work in us renewal, to make us and our lives pleasing to him. David goes on, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? David assumes here right, the presence inwardly of the Holy Spirit. And he's longing for the recreation of that by the Spirit's renewal in his heart upon his confession. The new life that we long for also includes what? An increase in joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? A growing joy in the restoration that follows from that. Verse 12, restore in me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Right? So godly sorrow leads to repentance from which flows joy, right? unspeakable joy. We also long for increased outward zeal right? in the expression of this. Right? Verse 13, I will teach transgressor, transgressors, sinners will return to you. Right? And so this new restored life, Following true repentance drives us to offer our lives also as pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 16 of Psalm 51 says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Right, so our turning from our sin to God maximizes our desire to live for him, for all that he's done in gratitude for us. David goes on, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, right? This is true repentance, to turn to our merciful God and to give him thanks, right? give him our sins so that he will send us back out to serve, having been cleansed, right? That, that, again, that process uh, of cleansing and consecration and communion and then commissioning back out again to take the love and forgiveness that we've been shown in Christ and the message of the gospel to all those the Lord brings across our paths with our lips and with our lives. And so what is the nature and glory of godly grief, of godly sorrow that leads to repentance? I want us to look briefly at this as we follow the principle of Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Um, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks to this, and I'm going to read a little bit from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This, of course, is the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. We know that that church was, had a lot to repent of. Right? There's, um, the church was a mess. But that's not all that we read. Right? Very much, often we think that that's all that the church was. It was a disaster and had all these problems to deal with. But there's actually a, a, a hint of joy that Paul has. And even in the heading of your um, Bible there provided <clears throat> in chapter 7. It talks about Paul's joy. Right? And so Paul has uh, chastised the church. He's instructed them. He's admonished them. And they've responded. And he's joyful for this. They've responded to his instruction. And it talks about this. Um, I won't read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read verse 10. It says this. <clears throat> For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? So he's contrasting the two. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Right? He points out the difference between these two. These two sorrows of grief. There's a godly sorrow and there's a worldly sorrow. And we can get some of this insight into what Paul is saying, what he's meaning, uh, looking at several examples from Scripture, from history. <clears throat> the first one I want to point out to you is Esau's sorrow, right? Remember Esau. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac. Uh, he was, his was the blessing. His was the promise. His was the inheritance. He was a hunter, remember? His brother Jason, Jacob says was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Jacob tricks, right, the younger one, tricks their father, pretending to be the older brother Esau. And Isaac, their father, blesses Jacob, thinking he's Esau. And Esau comes in, and Father Isaac asks, Who are you? I've given my blessing already. There's nothing that can be done. And we read in Genesis 27, verse 34, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. Esau's response was sorrow-filled, tears and anguish. But was it a worldly sorrow or a godly sorrow? Well, we have the answer in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 that tell us this. <clears throat> It says, see to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's tears were not the result of godly sorrow. He despised the covenant promises. We know this, we read in Genesis 25, verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And it says this, thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. He sold the covenant blessing and promise for a bowl of soup. And his sorrow was because he lost the material, physical, temporal, earthly blessing of it. He had no interest in the covenant. And so he was rejected. And though he shed worldly, sorrowful tears, he found no chance to repent. Worldly sorrow. And the next picture, the next portrait that I want to point out is uh, the contrast, the, the sorrows and the griefs of Judas and Peter, right? What their sorrows produced. Judas betrayed Christ, and he was sorrowful. It was worldly, though. Remember, it led Judas to what? To flee to the Pharisees, to return the money they had paid him, the 30 pieces of silver, and it led him to hang himself. He knew what he did was wrong, but his sorrow didn't lead to repentance. It led to death. Contrast that with Peter. You remember Peter, the apostle. He also, in a manner, betrayed the Lord when he denied him three times. And after swearing... Remember what he said. Even if I must die with you all, I will not deny you. I will not die. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then he does three times. And he hears the rooster crow, and he remembers the words of the Lord. And Matthew 26 tells us, and he went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. 
And so in contrast to Judas, Peter was grief-stricken. He was sorrow-stricken, and he went to Christ. His grief was a godly grief that led to repentance. And remember Peter's repentance. Remember his response after this. He sought forgiveness from Jesus. Right? When Peter sees that post-resurrected Christ, when Christ appears to them on the shore, Peter does what? He runs to Christ. He flees to him. He jumps out of the boat into the water. He swims to shore to be with Jesus. He can't get to him fast enough. And shortly after, Christ, in his mercy and grace, restores Peter by asking him three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's sorrow led to repentance, to life, to Christ. Judas's sorrow led to Pharisees, to the Pharisees. It led to death. And we should reflect upon these things, what Paul has written about the godly sorrow of the Corinthians and what we read of Peter and his sorrow and Esau and Judas and their sorrow. And then when we sin, we should think of these things and we should ask, is my sorrow of the world or is it of God? Sorrow is often worldly, you know. Often when we're filled with grief, it's because we've sinned and ruined our reputation or we've we're embarrassed at the fallout of our sin or that we just look bad or that we've harmed others and will suffer, suffer the consequence of our sin. And sometimes we're sorrowful just because we got caught and found out. It is possible to be sorry about wrong things that you do and it be a worldly sorrow that leads not to life but to death. And why is that? It's because it's purely about this world, about whatever it is, the embarrassment it caused but it hasn't got to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is what? It's, it's the nature of my relationship with the God against whom I've sinned. So what separates these two, right? This is it, the, the, the sorrow of the world from the godly sorrow. It's just this. Think of King David again, back to our psalm, and his gross wickedness and sin. David mourned. He mourned for the loss of his reputation and for what others would think and that he'd harmed Bathsheba and he'd killed Uriah and would suffer the discipline of God. But what was his godly sorrow? What was his, what, what caused him the most grief? What tormented his soul because of this, right? We remember what it was. We read it in verse four. David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course he'd sinned against other people, many people. He just confessed what he's done. And then he says, against God alone, right? You see that? The thing that crushed his heart and his soul was that ultimately he had offended his God. And in the end, David knew that he'd sinned against his heavenly father. And that was the thing. That was his greatest source of grief and sorrow. A godly sorrow ends in Christ in mourning over our sin and seeking to assuage our guilty conscience by fleeing to Christ, not only to alleviate our guilt, to make us feel better, but also seeking him because we know that in the end, ultimately he's the one whom we've offended. And so when we find ourselves grieving over our sin, we should ask, well, why am I grieving? What is the source? What is the motivation for my sorrow? And it properly should be grounded ultimately in the fact that we sinned against Christ and dishonored his name, the name that we bear. 
Godly sorrow leads us to Christ to restore our relationship with God. It also should lead us to the desire to keep from repeating that same sin. Right? Godly sorrow should produce right, the fuel, if you will, from future failings of the same thing. Just like a bone, right? you've heard famously been told, is strongest where it's been broken and healed. In the same way, we should be acutely sensitive and resolve in our failings that we've repented of. Right? The pain of our offense against Christ and a fear of repeating it. And this, of course, is part of the progression of our growth, of our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness, right? the very transformation of who we are by the work and power and presence of the Spirit within us. And then there's a final, there's a, there's a horizontal dimension to this as well, as, as well, this godly sorrow. And that's that when we are restored to God, right, it should drive us to be restored in all of our relationships uh, that we have, all other relationships, Right? So godly sorrow flees to Christ like Peter, like the Corinthians. And so we have to ask, is that your sorrow? Right? Are you sorry for your sins? And if so, in what way? Because you let someone down? Because someone has found out your sin? Somebody still find out your sin? And because I had brought shame to my family or my, my friends? We can all feel these things and not be on the path to life. But when I say, right, through the Spirit, Lord Jesus, I've sinned against you, and I'm not worthy to be called by your name, one of your very own, but you've died for me on the cross, and you've rose again to be my Lord and Master, and I hold on to you as my only rescue and hope, and I give you my everything. And you plead with him, come and cleanse me, change me, transform me, Lord. Radically transform my life and my love for you and my relationships with others. Forgive me and heal me. That is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. May this indeed be the longing and attitude of all of our hearts. And notice one last thing here from 2 Corinthians 7.10. Listen again in case we missed it. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, without regret, right? If this is true, if this is true of your heart, you will never, ever, ever regret it. The repentance and your fleeing to the Savior. Godly repentance is regretless repentance, you see. And as we've seen these examples from Scripture and how they were moved and motivated to godly, life-giving, life-transforming repentance that fled to Christ, may we too, in our sins and our failings, Flee to the only Savior who can forgive and give life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only rescue and power for life, the one we remember and worship and give thanks for, the one who died and rose again from the dead on that first Easter morning, the one whose work makes possible and accomplishes for sure, for certainty, our life and our salvation. May we flee to our risen Lord and remember his work always, Lord's day by Lord's day, moment by moment, that because of his death and resurrection, we have life and peace and hope, even in our sorrows and grief. And more than that, by his Holy Spirit, by his power, he uses them to lead us to repentance and life going forward. What a wonderful thing it is, brothers and sisters, to belong to this King and Redeemer, our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us ever praise him 
and live for him and go tell others that there is forgiveness and freedom in this precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the life you've given us. Help us, dear Lord, to believe what you tell us, that we've died to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life. Lord, we're so slow to understand and believe. Help us, Lord, to believe, increase our faith, that we would live repentant lives, honest, genuine before you, seeking Christ, Lord. Transform us, we pray, evermore for your glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.